Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lack, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 15th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, March 31. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. My guest today is Stephen Molo, one of the nation's leading courtroom advocates. He represents corporations, boards, funds, and individuals in complex business litigation, white-collar criminal matters, and IP litigation. Chambers and Partners calls him fantastic in the courtroom, a fabulous courtroom litigator who lights up the room with his presence. Benchmark Litigation, which named Steve one of the top 100 trial lawyers in America, calls him revered, an outstanding advocate and fearless in court who delivers the goods. But Steve isn't just a great litigator, he's also an innovator in the law firm space. In 2009, he and Jeff Lampkin founded Mola Lampkin, today one of the top litigation boutiques in the country. As I've said and written many times in the past, I believe that boutiques are in many ways the future of the legal profession, especially in litigation. And I say this based on firms like Molo Lamkin. In our conversation, Steve and I discussed his impressive legal career, going from prosecutor to big law partner to boutique founder, the vision for Molo Lamkin that he and Jeff Lamkin had when they launched the firm during the Great Recession and whether it has lived up to that vision, their incredibly successful approach to hiring and training lawyers, and finally, a number of issues in the news, including diversity and inclusion, free speech controversies at law school, and how the pandemic has transformed the legal profession. Without further ado, here's my interview of Steve Molo. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast, David. It's such a pleasure to catch up with an old friend. And of course, I know some of the stuff that we will discuss, but for the benefit of my listeners, let's dive right in. Tell me a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing. Did you have any lawyers in the family? What led you to go to law school? Well, I grew up in Chicago on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Roseland. I came from a working class family. Neither of my parents had gone to college and had three sisters and went straight to college from high school and straight to law school from college and plowed through and was a lawyer at the age of 25 and have been practicing law since. The reasons for going to law school, I mean, for me, it was certainly a world with which I was not familiar. There were no lawyers in my family. There were no lawyers in my neighborhood. It was not something that I grew up understanding, except that it seemed to me to be a great way for a smart person to have a career, have professional advancement, have social advancement. And so that's what really drew me to it. I think that's absolutely true. It's an amazing, wonderful profession. I think it is a great engine of upward mobility. So tell me, when you were in law school, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do afterwards? I pretty much wanted to be a trial lawyer from the time I was in law school. And I wasn't quite sure exactly what that was going to look like, but I was fortunate to start my career as a prosecutor. I did that for three and a half years, almost four years. Tried a lot of cases, also got to argue a lot of appeals. I mean, I was surprised recently looking back through an old file and finding a resume that I had where I left to go to Winston and Strong and seeing just how many cases I had tried and appeals argued. And it's very hard for young lawyers to get that experience today. I was literally right before this call on the phone with some people running a 
moot court competition. And we were talking about how getting students to get that opportunity to get on their feet, which is available now, wasn't really so much that to the same degree is critically important. But there's a lot of very successful trial lawyers and litigators who started out that way. And for me, it worked out really well. And then when I went to Winston and Strawn, I had the opportunity to also get into court quite a bit because I came with so much experience and had a mentor there who let me go to court and try cases. And I built a client following a bit of my own over the time there. And so I took off from there. You mentioned that document you saw about your earlier career. Do you recall how many trials or appeals you did while a prosecutor? I think I had 24 trials in the years. And that was bench and jury trials, but they could be anything from certainly nothing less than about two days to about two weeks or two and a half weeks, that kind of thing. And I probably argued about 10 or 12 appeals then authored also some briefs on some appeals that I didn't argue. But it's amazing now, too. I see resumes from young lawyers coming from government, and sometimes people are there for seven or eight years, and they really don't have that much experience. And one of the keys, I think, to becoming a successful trial lawyer is you know, the number one key is I mean, trying cases. I mean, it sounds it's almost trite, but I call it mileage, getting up on your feet, making mistakes developing a style of your own, learning from those mistakes, and developing judgment. Because the only way you develop judgment is by having to make a decision and live with it. And that's something that isn't easily done once you're in a large law firm working on matters there under a very hierarchical structure. But it is a little surprising. Fewer cases go to trial. Yeah, that's true. But nonetheless, it is a little surprising when you see someone who's been in a prosecutor's office for six years, seven years, and they've had five trials, seven trials, something like that. But yeah, so I was very, very lucky. And that set the course for me to go out and do too much more in private practice, both at Winston and Scarn and eventually at Sherman and Sterling before starting Mobile Lampkin. So tell me about how you made that jump from being a prosecutor to your first job at a large firm at Winston. I went to Winston and Scarn and I joined the firm at a time when, you know, it was still just a few hundred lawyers and the firm grew tremendously. By the time I left, we were 950 lawyers and I got to be part of that growth. And it was a firm that tried cases, had a history of people who were strong trial lawyers dating far back before my joining the firm. And so again, I took the opportunity to try anything I could get on my feet in court any way I could, whether it was a trial, whether it was an appeal, whether it was an argument of emotion, those sorts of things. It really is in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen much more specialization with appellate practice than, you know, we used to. And I still have argued many, many appeals as well as tried many cases. And the market defines me more as a trial lawyer. And that was the philosophy there as well at that time. The experience you get, I've always felt I was a better trial lawyer for the appellate work I did. I was a better appellate lawyer for the trial work I did. I was a better civil lawyer for the criminal work I did. I was a better criminal lawyer for the civil work I did. And that kind of breath enables you to develop creativity and foster the creativity that you may have so that you might look at a problem that is in a specific area of the law and pull from a completely different area of the law to solve that problem because you can see more broadly. You've got peripheral vision. You've got some experience and you understand also then how that may play out with a judge or with a court. Absolutely true. And sadly, in terms of, for example, the decline in trials, I think the rise in specialization also makes it harder to be a, a generalist. I think that one of the great things you have going at 
Mullah Lamkin is you have a pretty diverse practice and your lawyers get to do different things. And a lot of other similarly sized firms are very, very focused on one thing. And so actually, let's shift to that. You sure. launched Mullah Lamkin almost 15 years ago, 2009. We know what was going on in the world in 2009. What were you thinking? Why would you launch a new venture during a time of incredible economic turmoil? Why would you leave the safety of big law at that point? You and many others, I think, asked that same question. They would shake our hands and congratulate us and turn and walk away. So these people are absolutely nuts. It was actually a great time to start a law firm because disruption is a litigator's friend, right? I mean, when there's disruption, there's disputes. When there's disputes, there's opportunities for lawyers who represent parties in those disputes. So, yeah, I mean, that was the nadir of the financial crisis. I guess that would be the nadir of the crisis or the height of the crisis, however you, however <laughs> you measure the worst part of a crisis. But it was a challenging time. One of the things that we clearly wanted to be able to do when we started the firm was to be able to sue banks. And so we just thought that New York, and the rest of the country didn't need another firm to represent banks. And so that worked out really well for us because we had, I think, something like 13 of these residential mortgage-backed securities litigation. We helped make the law in those cases, recovered well over a billion dollars for clients in those cases. And it was sophisticated litigation, primarily New York-based, that allowed us to develop and train some of the, the juniors. That wasn't the only thing that we were doing, but that was one thing we're being adverse to banks. And we're adverse to banks all the time now, too. So that was one thing. And ultimately, I mean, Jeff Lampkin and I had met in, it was 2006, Ron Perlman had sued Morgan Stanley in this case in Palm Beach County, Florida. And it was kind of a crazy fraud theory that involved firms getting sanctioned and the general counsel, then general counsel Morgan Stanley called me up and said, you know, how quickly can you come to Florida and how many people can you bring with you? We got to bring in a new firm. And the judge has entered a directed verdict on four of the five elements of fraud. And there were a couple of other firms that were involved. Jeff had actually worked with one of them at one point in time. At that point in time, he was the head of the appellate practice at Baker Botts in Washington, D.C. after having clerked for Justice O'Connor and been in the Solicitor General's office. And there was a $1.6 billion judgment against Morgan Stanley, which we ended up getting reversed and judgment entered against Ron Perlman. And when we tell the story of the firm, we say we met on the deck of a sunken submarine. It was so bad. <laughs> we weren't even inside the sunken submarine. We were on the deck of it. So we sent some work back and forth to each other after that a little bit and worked together on a few things and then set out to do this because really we saw it as an opportunity to do our own thing where we would have control over the quality of the lawyers that we hired, which, I mean, the last year that I was in Sherman Australia, I think we had 150 summer associates and Sherman Stone was a great firm and it was a great firm then. Baker Botts was a great firm, but it's very hard to, you know, maintain the control, especially when you're doing specialized work like we were doing. And so that was a big motivator. The ability to control our fate more directly in terms of the quality of the cases, how we handle those cases. We had both come from significant successful careers up to that point in time where we'd won many more cases than we'd lost. So why not be able to bet on yourself, which we did then and we have done. And we started the firm with five lawyers and two offices in New York and Washington. And we now have, I think, 43 or 44 lawyers in New York, Washington and Chicago. So I'm curious, when you and Jeff were thinking about launching this firm, did you prepare any kind of document or business plan or outline for your vision of the firm? And if so, how does that compare to what the firm is today? We did. We absolutely did. 
We had an 85-page strategic plan. First of all, we're very mindful of our fiduciary duties to our then existing partners, and we fulfilled those. But we had an 85-page strategic plan that did not have a number in it. Then we had 50 iterations of the numbers and pro formas that we did. So we really spent a lot of time thinking through what we wanted to do. And I mean, I think it's great testament to the power of intention and having a clear vision for what it is that I would be lying if I told you that we didn't have problems from time to time with execution. But I think from the beginning, it very much was what we wanted to do. And if you read that document today and you saw what we are today, you'd say, this lines up pretty well. And that's basically doing three things. Business disputes, broadly defined, intellectual property disputes, white collar defense. We do that from the trial court or arbitral forums all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. Jeff had an argument this just Monday on the Amgen case in the Supreme Court. And basically being able to bet on ourselves, being able to take risk alongside clients, having a worldwide presence, which we actually do, notwithstanding the absence of offices, but through our relationships with some really fine lawyers outside the United States and key markets. So all of those things were things that we wanted to do. And gratefully, we've been able to achieve that. But you've got to get up every morning and do it again. Would you like to become the next Steve Molo, a big law partner turned founder of a thriving boutique? This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. There are a range of different models for boutiques. You have some firms like Cooper & Kirk that have stayed at their size for the whole time. You have some firms that start out small and then become gigantic, like Quinn Emanuel. You have some firms that land in between, like Sussman Godfrey, the firm founded by your late mentor, Steve Sussman. When you and Jeff started the firm, did you have an idea of whether you wanted to kind of be at the size you are now, 40-something lawyers? Did you want to become the next sort of Quinn Emanuel or Boyce Schiller? Did you want to stay small? Did you have a thought on that? Yeah, we thought we would be 40 to 50 lawyers in five years. In reality, it took us about 10 years to get to that size, but it didn't matter because we made money, we were profitable, we continued to attract great talent, we continued to attract great cases and clients. So our focus has always really been about culture and quality. And there can be, you know, an inverse relationship between size and quality. It isn't always, but there can be. And we were never interested in doing what Quinn has done. And look, it's worked for them. I'm not in any way critical, but it's different for us. And we think we will continue to grow. I mean, we hope we will continue to grow, but, you know, in a general purposeful way, intentional way that isn't about just adding revenue or adding lawyers for lawyers' sake. We're really focused on the culture. I'm guessing that maybe one of the reasons why you didn't hit your headcount goal sooner is your firm is known for having extremely high hiring standards because you want lawyers who are both amazing lawyers, but you also need lawyers who fit into your culture. Tell us about your hiring process. And is that a fair statement to say that yeah. maybe you haven't grown as quickly because you really are very, very selective on your talent? Yeah, well, we're clearly selective, but we say as quickly. I mean, we have grown just fine or at the pace that we've grown. It's not like we've missed some goal there in a real sense. I think that there's no question that we're highly selective in who we hire and how we hire. So Typically, all of our associates have clerked for at least one, but more often now, two federal judges, although sometimes someone will clerk in a state court. And 
they've all gone to great schools and done well in great schools and all of the usual stuff that's there. We like to hire people of clerk because one, by that point in time, they've certainly demonstrated an interest in litigation and in their own minds, they should have a pretty good sense of what they want to do. I mean, a lot of people coming out of law school, frankly, especially if you're in a situation like I was, where you didn't really have lawyers in the family or know what lawyers did. I mean, those people have a large amount of money dangled in front of them in a large law firm. And they think, hey, this is something new. Or you have student loans that you have to pay off, which is so common. So a lot of times they maybe think they want to do litigation, but maybe that isn't really what they want to do once they realize what it is or what it is in a large law firm. So by the time they're coming to us, they've had a little time to think about those things. They may have spent a year at a large law firm. It's not uncommon for us to have somebody that spent a year at a great large law firm. And then somehow with the clerkships, as you know, nowadays, it's not so linear where people go to clerk right out of school or they go to another clerkship right out of school. And then they interview with now probably 25 lawyers over the course of three days, maybe. Jeff and I certainly interview everybody that we hire, but it used to be when we were smaller that you'd interview with everybody in the firm. And we really go about it in a thoughtful way where we have worked with some consultants on kinds of questions that we ask people. It's a tricky balance. You want people who are smart, who are competent, and who are willing to take calculated risks and work on their own. People who tend to have the kinds of credentials of the people that we hire tend to be, by nature, conservative, right? They've gone to the very best high school so they could go to the best college, so they go to the best law school, get the best grades, so they can get the best clerkship. And so often those are not people that are willing to take appropriate risk. So we're looking for that, people who are self-starters. Everybody in the firm is client-facing to a degree, some more than others. But, you know, people who can sit down with a client, client come away thinking, boy, this is not just a smart person, but a person in whom I have confidence. And people who are also willing to stick around for a bit, we're not really interested in hiring somebody who's going to be there for a year and want to go off to the U.S. Attorney's Office or the SEC or something like that. If social contract is you get this great mentor and great experience, but we'd kind of like you to stay around for at least three years or so, so that you get the benefit of what we're doing and we get the benefit of what you're doing both. It's demanding. But, you know, last year we made eight offers, seven people accepted. Wow. And the year before that, I think we made six offers and five people accepted. These are of the associates coming off of clerkships. And I think, I can't remember where the statistic was the year before, but I think that says something about the process. So in terms of the strengths of the firm, I think they're obvious. You have amazing talent. You have a really thorough hiring process. You work on some of the most interesting areas of law, trials, appeals, white collar work, IP. I think those are four things that young lawyers and law students are very, very interested in. Tell me about what you think are the limitations of the firm or things that maybe you don't feel well-equipped as a firm to handle. Are there certain things where you might make a referral rather than take it yourself? Absolutely. I mean, the beauty of what we do, we do what we do extremely well. And that's what we do. So if someone has a tax-related problem, it could even be like tax litigation, or it's sort of the, what I'll call run-of-the-mill employment type issues where, I mean, we're often involved in cases where you'll have a founder or a portfolio manager at a fund or a senior executive that's in a dispute. We get brought into those situations. But if it's a situation where it's just a more of a standard harassment situation or whatever, that we're not the right firm for that kind of thing. But what's interesting, David, is that we often do partner with other firms where people 
have a problem in a substantive area and they want our advocacy expertise. And that ranges from very routine matters to the company matters where there are great law firms already involved in the matter and the client, and sometimes a law firm, but the client will come to us and say, we want to add you to the team. And that's a significant percentage of our work. I would bet 80% of our cases has another law firm involved in some capacity, maybe co-counsel thing. I tried a jury trial before late last year and it was a case, a 10 5 class action for the plaintiff class. The plaintiffs had been prosecuting the case, plaintiff lawyers had been prosecuting the case for five years and they got a trial setting and they reached out four months before the case was going to go to trial and we dove in and, and got ready. I mean, I have another case that'll go to trial in the fall in Kansas City, a major antitrust case where great, great law firm has been handling the case for the first four years much more antitrust expertise, case by set for trial. Client reached out and said, we're going to keep this other law firm. They're going to stay involved, but you know, we want you to come in because we need you know trial expertise. And it's not just me. It is the firm because I can't do what I do. Jeff can't do what he does and Justin Schur and others can't without the full team available. So it seems like a great model in a way because you get to work on these high stakes, bet the company complex matters but you don't need to have two dozen associates reviewing documents. You partner with somebody and maybe they have the two dozen associates reviewing the documents, but you get to do the strategic stuff and the high level stuff and the trial advocacy. So it seems that your size doesn't constrain you in that way. Does your size constrain you in other ways, given this ability to partner with other firms? We really don't feel that it does. And you know, one of the things that we look for when we we're hiring people and one of our main philosophies is that, look, Law is a collaborative process. Practicing law is a collaborative exercise and people should have to be able to do that. A great example, we have been involved in the Revlon bankruptcy and Paul Weiss, which is a phenomenal law firm, has been debtor's counsel in the matter. And actually, while I was on trial in the case that I just mentioned, I was contacted by them about whether or not Paul Basto, who's a phenomenal lawyer there, reached out and said, will you guys come in? We have a conflict and a claim that's going to be there with the city and we can't be adverse to them. So from the very beginning, we were involved in that case and in some very, very interesting legal issues and work shoulder to shoulder with Paul Weiss. And if you're going to do that sort of thing, and if you expect people to come and ask you to do that, right, and be part of a team, you've got to be people who are team players. And I know that's an overused term, but you really do need to be part of a team, be willing to subject your ego to the greater good, not worry about always being there for the glory on everything. And yet you'll still get your share of it. I'm curious, given the challenges of how a lot of things settle, which we talked about earlier, how does one become a successful trial lawyer today so that you are brought in by the Paul Weisses of the world or by the plaintiff's firms when the thing is about to go to trial? How do you get those reps? The reps, the mileage comes by really trying to get on your feet in any way that you can. and. Also, in our case, being at a firm where we encourage it and we enable it. So that case that I tried before Judge Rakoff, there were five Molo Lampkin lawyers who got on their feet during the course of that trial. And by on your feet, I mean in front of the jury. So it wasn't just arguing a motion. There was that too, but there was being in front of the jury. So we really encourage it. We certainly take on pro bono work that allows people to do it. And sometimes we take cases that are maybe not as economically profitable or 
if we were to apply a strict analysis to our time and say only work on the thing that is the most likely to yield the biggest financial recovery for the firm, might not be a matter that we take, but it gets people on their feet and ultimately it makes the firm more profitable. That makes perfect sense. I can totally see that. Do you ever have situations, though, where a client who has come to Mullo Lampkin because of you or Jeff says, oh, Steve, I want you or I want Jeff or I want Justin or I want one of the more senior lawyers to handle this rather than an associate or a younger partner? It happens, but not that often because, frankly, if I mean, it may happen, especially at the outset, but usually after they've worked with people for a while, they understand that these are people that are really good and that they can trust our judgment if we say we want them to lead a matter or to actually, you know, do something in a courtroom. I mean, but there are plenty of other lawyers in the firm that try cases besides me. We mentioned Justin Sherman, Megan Church. Justin Ellis has a case that's going to go to trial in a few months. You know, Ben Cornby, there are people that, that are excellent, excellent trialers. Same thing with the appeals. I mean, Robert Cry is good. Mike Patillo, we just argued a case in the Supreme Court. So there are plenty of very fine lawyers. It's not just about us. The other thing I'm really struck by in terms of your talent is not only do you have these amazing lawyers who came from these great firms, former Supreme Court clerks, et cetera, but there's also a fair amount of diversity in your ranks, which is definitely something that firms are paying more attention to in this age. So how did you achieve that? Do you have thoughts on how to build a diverse law firm, people often say, how do I achieve a diverse workforce? Especially given the pipeline issue of how sometimes the institutions from which you're hiring are not necessarily that diverse. I think that's a great question. We started the firm, as we say, with five white guys. That's (laughs) the way we describe it, five white guys. And now, David, we have 40% of our lawyers are from backgrounds that are historically underrepresented in the profession. And we take tremendous pride in that because as we're talking about now, first generation lawyer is a thing. I mean, I guess I was a first generation lawyer, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people from backgrounds, either through their gender, race, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, that they're from backgrounds that are underrepresented. And you have to work at it. I mean, that may seem obvious, but the work at it part isn't just the recruiting them because there's a historic significant failure rate in large law firms of people hiring diverse candidates who come in and they spend a year or two and then they don't leave. So it's really about creating an environment where people feel they can come and do their best work and be recognized for it and grow as a professional. And frankly, we're busy. If we're hiring you, we're hiring you because we think that you can contribute. We're not looking to meet some hiring quota that we have during the course of the year. We really, for all the way, you know, reasons that we talked about, things that are important to lawyers to come to firm, we live by our promises. We're very conscious of, we tell somebody something and we check in on that. We say, hey, are you getting what you expected? Is there something else that you feel like you could be getting? So I think it really amounts to that. And maybe sometimes in large law firms, people don't realize what that work is going to be when they get there and they find that they're frustrated because they're not doing as much, given as much responsibility as they feel maybe they would like. So I think that intentionality has been a big part of it. We're also involved in some of the diversity programs that are important out there today that some of clients and some other firms are big on that. So the Leadership Council for Legal Diversity is one that we're part of. We've had 
number of people go through their various levels of programs and we support that. But the one that I think is closest to our heart, collective heart, is the American Bar Association Judicial Intern Opportunity Program, the JIA program. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. It's a program that hasn't gotten enough recognition. And it basically places students who are from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds with a judge, could be a state judge, could be a federal judge, for six or seven weeks during the summer. And they're paid the princely sum of about $2,700 or $2,800 for that period of time. And then there's a few hundred bucks that go to administrative costs. But it's really transformative for a lot of people to be in an environment like that where it's not like a summer associate situation where they're trying out for a job. I mean, yes, most summer associates are offered jobs, but you know, this is a situation where it's an internship. You're going to do it. You're going to go on. You're not there trying out to be a clerk necessarily, although some of them do go on to become clerks. And the program's been, it's very competitive and it's been very successful. So one of the things that we are doing is leading the effort, and we support it in all three cities in which we have offices, New York, Washington, Chicago, but we're leading an effort in New York to create what will be 20 Katzman Fellows, named after Bob Katzman, the late chief judge, who was great and a supporter of the program, and it will be endowed. So we have committed a substantial amount of money ourselves. Sullivan and Cromwell stepped up to the plate. We're in the process of talking to a number of other leading firms to support this. And it is a pipeline issue, as you say. You can't just throw someone into fast-paced organization, high-performing organization, and expect that they're necessarily going to be able to perform at a high level right away. But we think that this is a great, great program. And it matches well with who we are in terms of we ultimately only hire clerks, right, From as associates. So I think looking for those sorts of things and being focused and intentional is really key. That's a great program, and I hope that firms that are interested in joining will reach out to you. Turning to the pipeline, namely the nation's top law schools, one thing that I've been covering a lot on original jurisdiction are these cultural wars, these free speech controversies that are playing out in many law schools today. Do you have any thoughts on that from where you sit as somebody who hires these young lawyers and trains these young lawyers? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do. I mean, I think you'd be blind or a fool as a lawyer not to be paying attention to this because it affects the profession ultimately. And this plays out right now at a law school, but ultimately those are the people who are being trained to take the jobs that are going to be representing clients or representing the government, whatever it may be in some way. And so, yeah, I mean, my view is pretty simple on this, which is that I believe that law schools are supposed to be sort of the ultimate citadels of protecting free speech and free exchange of ideas. And I mean, I'm not talking about hate speech, but speech that may be something that you don't agree with. And in fact, you may vehemently disagree with it. But one of the old adages, you know, we're sometimes say is we can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think that treating someone who espouses a point of view different from yours, that again, is not hate speech, but maybe radically different in a rude way, in a demeaning way, in an intimidating way. That's a real problem. And it's a particular problem for lawyers in law schools, because we often are in situations, not every lawyer, some lawyers have the luxury of only representing people whose views that they are 100% in alignment with, but that's not what lawyers are supposed to do. Lawyers are supposed to be able to represent people even they don't agree with the conduct or the position where clients are taking on the issues. But I think that it's important that lawyers maintain that balance and that even more importantly, that law schools take 
the steps to protect that balance and making sure that that's available. Just like I said, Moolampa, we want to have an environment where people can come and feel like they can come and do their best work. I think it's a responsibility of a law school to feel that whatever someone's political views are, they can come there and they can study and learn and become the best law student and lawyer they can be without fear of retribution or ostracization, whatever it may be. And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of really aggressive activity going on these days. And I think that's unfortunate. So in terms of boutiques, which I think are in many ways the future of the legal profession, if you ask me, a lot of them do tend to have an ideological valence in terms of you're talking about representing clients where your views may align with theirs. You have great progressive ones like Kaplan Hecker and Gupta Wessler. You have great conservative ones like Consovoy McCarthy, Cooper and Kirk. Does Molo Lampkin have an ideological valence to it? How would you describe yourselves if somebody said, I'm a progressive or I'm a conservative or I'm a libertarian or I'm a liberal? How do I fit in at your firm? I would say if you are a great lawyer interested in doing great work and can be collaborative and put the client's interests first, then, you know, this is the place for you. If you're coming here to make a political statement, we really don't do that. That's not to say that we're not involved in cases that may be controversial or cases that people may disagree with or clients that they may not necessarily think are clients that they would necessarily endorse what they've done. But we've really been agnostic about people's political beliefs. And it's consistent with the idea of a diverse law firm. It's not to say that somebody else wants to do something else, that they should do that. But that's not who we are. That's totally fair. That makes perfect sense. And the talent market, people can self-select firms. And if they want to go be an ideological warrior, there are great firms to do that. Before we shift to our final questions, which I've standardized for my guests, let me ask you just one last thing in terms of just what's going on in the world right now. I think we are emerging from this pandemic after three long years. March really, I think, marks for many people the third anniversary of this. It's certainly when I got very sick with it. What effect do you think the pandemic had on the legal profession? And feel free to talk about either what you saw at Mola Lampkin or what you observed at other firms or the profession more broadly. Well, first, you scared the hell out of us. <laughs> Anyone who knew you, I mean, was just, I mean, my God, just to be thinking that we're sitting here talking today, thinking about the photographs that you were circulating. And you know, the thing that is amazing, because this came up in a case that I was dealing with recently, too, how quickly we've forgotten how intense that time was. You were a very, very public part of that at the time, but you know, there was no cure. There was no meaningful insight as to how it was transmitted. We had no idea how long we were going to be in the situation we were in with lockdowns and, you know, with social distancing and everything that was there. I mean, some of the misinformation, we were, we were all washing down our groceries and things <laughs> like that when they came home. And, you know, it's great that we can laugh at it, especially you, you know, today. But, you know, none of us knew any of that. And yet we saw people dying. I knew several people that died. And your illness, which was so significant at the time, was really, really frightening. So, it's hard to say that you can go through something like that and not have it have an impact on us, right? I think that the obvious flexibility in the work situation is one that is here for good. Although I do know that, I mean, our own practice, we have Tuesdays and Wednesdays that we call anchor days. People are expected to be in the office those days. People are in the office other days. And obviously, if you have something that's going to trial, if you've got a big argument, you're doing courts and things like that, people are going to tend to be in 
more than otherwise. But, you know, that's sort of what's working for us. I know other firms are being more exacting and requiring attendance and such. But that's a big change. I think that the other thing that people forget, and, and it's always said, and it is true, that there is something to be said for the in-person mentoring. And it happens all the time. I mean, it happens all the time when we're in the office now. I'm walking by someone's office and we strike up a conversation about this or that, that I had no intention of having that conversation with that person, but that person's there. She or I or he and I have the conversation and it advances whatever it is that we're doing. But there's a harder part to it, which is this. So you don't get that when you're not in the office, but you also don't get, we're talking about political beliefs and culture wars. It's a lot easier to be a culture warrior against someone that you don't really sit across the table from and have a cocktail or lunch or whatever it may be. And I do think the hardening that we've seen in society, many, many, many reasons for it, but it's not helped. And in fact, is worsened by the lack of face-to-face interaction. I think that's absolutely true. Some people have wondered whether tensions we've seen at the Supreme Court might be because the justices weren't having their regular conferences and lunches. Certainly at Yale Law School, which had some problems last year, I heard from a lot of students there that they think it had a lot to do with the pandemic and things have really gotten better now that people are breaking bread with each other and going to drinks with each other or sharing pizza. So turning to my final four questions, the first one is, What do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or it can be law as a more abstract system. I think the time that it sometimes can take to get to a resolution for a client. So you might have a matter that has motion that's important to the case that might sit under advisement for a year or more. And that can be very frustrating. It's very hard for a lawyer to explain that to a client and just, you know, explain that there's, very little that can be done. So those sorts of things and then the other delays that sometimes come along, I think that's a frustration about being a lawyer. And the other is, is I would say lawyers who fail to put their clients' interests first. And for one reason or another, their ego, their own financial motivations, whatever it might be, they're not looking to reach a resolution or at least a means for a resolution. In other words, if a case is going to go to trial, then let's let it go to trial. Let's not draw things out. If it's going to get resolved short of a trial, let's get that done, whatever it may be. And I think we have a lot more, as I say, cases rather than clients. For many people, they come to us, it's the only time that we'll represent them for a company or for an individual. And it's easier when you don't have those institutional relationships that sometimes are harder, you know, where people are balancing the overall uh, relationship. But I do think that those are two frustrations with the practice that I wish we could do something about. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that angle in terms of how maybe you're better able to represent the client if you just have that representation for a discrete matter. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? My golf game would not get me on the PGA Tour or even (laughs) the live tour. So I think it would probably be something in finance. A lot of the litigation that I handle, a lot of the cases that I handle are things that have litigation as part of a trade or whether there's a strategic business issue that's there. I was in court in Delaware yesterday with a whole group of great lawyers, Miguel Estrada, Don Borelli, Ray Schrock, Amy Walter Wachau were there involving sovereign debt of Venezuela and fighting over our clients, you know, my own several hundred million dollars of Venezuelan debt and things like that. So that's an example where the litigation is part of the trade, but it could be 
could be an M&A transaction, could be all sorts of things. Yeah, I think something related to finance would probably be a logical thing to have done. And it also allows for creativity, which in my area of the practice of law is something that I get to be creative in what I do all the time. So I I think that finance would probably be something that I would have done. That makes sense, especially given what clients say about how they want lawyers who understand their business. And I think one of the reasons a lot of funds and other financial companies come to your firm is because you understand their business. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Okay, so I have always been someone who's functioned well on relatively little sleep, especially in crunch periods and things like that. But on an average, which tends to be very busy, but nonetheless, not you know my sort of routine, usually no more than six hours a night. And wow, I'm jealous. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not to say that there isn't a weekend where I want to just crash, but it's usually it's usually about six hours, and I'm an early riser, so. I like to get up early in the morning and I work out and I have my quiet time to sort through things. I do a lot of reading, but that's what works for me. And I understand that there's a benefit to that, I guess. I mean, there's, and there was always a talk that Mary Jo White, you know, functioned on four hours sleep a night. I could not do that, but usually if I get six hours of sleep or so, that's a pretty good night for me. I think that puts you ahead of the game. And there has been research suggesting that there is some percentage of people out there who actually can get by and function very effectively with less than average sleep. My last question is, any final words of either career or life advice for my listeners? When we started Molo Lampkin, a dear friend of mine, Jamie Spray Reagan at Kirkland, sent me a note. And the only words in the note were, dare to be great. Huh. And I think that that really does say a lot because... The other extreme of Henry David Thoreau's, you know, the massive men lead lives of quiet desperation. I mean, I think that that can be true in law, but I mean, I think in law, there are so many opportunities to do so many great things that are fulfilling. And I think some of it is the effect some people have that they just don't want to take a chance. They don't want to take a risk. And lawyers are pretty risk averse by nature. But usually, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is that thing isn't going to work out. It doesn't take away all that you accomplished before then. And, you know, we've seen people that, you know, you bounce around from this place, that place, whatever. But taking the risk just is, you know, we were talking about earlier in this conversation that we took when we started Model Lampkin, walking away from pretty substantial incomes as partners in the firms that we were partners in and somewhat predictable course to your career going forward, it was a risk. And I'm not patting myself, you know, on the back and saying that, but I'm just saying it's an example where had it not worked out, I mean, I guess we could have presumably gone back and done something similar, if not necessarily at the same firms. And I think that too many lawyers feel trapped and don't want to take that risk or dare to be great, as Jamie would say. And some people too, it's just for me, if I didn't do this, I would feel like I was really unfulfilled as a person. I had to do this. And not everyone has that driving compulsion, if you will. But take the time to think about it. Think about really what is the worst thing that could happen. And don't be so shy about going forward. I mean, you, you're an example of that on several levels as well, too, both from the practice of law to doing above the law and then leaving above the law to doing what you're doing now, or first doing lateral link and then doing what you're doing now. So it's worked out and follow your hope, your dream, your spirit, whatever it may be that's guiding you. Well, I think those are really excellent words to end on. You have dared to be great, Steve, and I believe (laughs) you have succeeded. So thank you so much for joining me. And thank you again for your insight and wisdom and your friendship over the years. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Take care. Thanks so much to Steve for joining me. 
He's one of the most deeply thoughtful people I know, whether it's about litigating a case or launching a law firm, which explains both his success as a lawyer and why he's such a fun person to interview. In our interview, Steve talked about the huge amount of planning that he and Jeff Lamkin put into the launch of Molo Lamkin. If you're thinking about following in their footsteps, reach out to NextFirm, the sponsor of this podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave at Big Law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter, if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, April 19. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.